0: Coming up on Unpolished MBA.
1: You know, getting an MBA is, you know, it's not worthless, but there are just things you just have to learn as you go. Yes. One is starting a company, especially if you don't have that support. You end up at the start doing everything. There's not too much at the company that I haven't done, but you quickly want to find people to fit in your weaknesses.
0: This show is sponsored by TPM Focus, the strategy and execution consulting firm focused on generating revenue and finding product market fit for new innovations. Head over to TPMFocus.com to learn more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Unpolished MBA podcast. And today I have with me, Mr. Dwayne Slider. Hi, Dwayne. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. I want to thank you for joining us today, but I'm gonna start by asking you the same two questions I ask everyone else. And the first one is, are you an entrepreneur or a corporate employee?
1: Definitely an
0: entrepreneur. MBA or no MBA?
1: I do have an MBA, yes.
0: Whoa, All right. So before we even go into the business side, entrepreneurial side, tell me, why did you get your MBA?
1: Well, in the 90s, I started a SaaS company and I didn't have an MBA then. And I knew how to develop software, but I didn't know how to market a product or run a company. And I talked to investors and they thought we were crazy. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I really like this concept of being an entrepreneur. So I did get an MBA, but mainly because I just love school. I like that atmosphere. It really wasn't because I feel you need one, though, I, you know, I acquired a lot of critical skills, but I, I think you can learn them anyways. You know, it was, yeah, I enjoy that atmosphere.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? Some people and I would say i will probably fall into that mindset where I'm curious. I love to learn new things, but goodness gracious, I certainly don't like paying NBA prices to learn. things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, I've only had two people on the show out of we're almost at 50 episodes who had their companies pay for the NBA. So back in the 90s, did your company pay for it?
1: They paid for some of it. And I was able to do some of it at like a, you know, a state school. Mm -hmm. I was in St. Louis at the time. So I was at Washington University out there.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Which was expensive. Yes. But I made it as small as possible.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it sounds like you made a smart move because it gave you skills and, and information you didn't have before. Tell me a little bit about what your undergrad was in, because for everyone that's on here, most are in the technology space, but they may not have understood when you said you started a SaaS business. SaaS stands for software as a service. And basically all of the tools and apps that you're using right now and paying monthly for, or annually for, those are SaaS tools, software as a service. So tell us a little bit about what your undergrad was in. I was a math major.
1: So okay. I moved Hi. very fast into software development. I was doing a lot of defense contracting. So I was very well connected with other people that were doing the same kind of things
0: mm-hmm.
1: and was able to you know, just create a community of people that wanted to start a company.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, since you come from the STEM field, you definitely meet a lot of intellectual, intelligent people that can do coding and everything else. But one thing that's not in our population is the marketing, not usually the marketing, the branding, whatever, which sounds like you were able to get that, you know, at least the beginning of that in your MBA.
1: That's what I would say. Just enough to know what I
0: didn't know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, exactly. And how important it is. I always say after you have a product, everything else is sales and marketing. Most people don't realize that though, because they think they just keep tweaking the product and the product is great and that's that's all that's needed. But um not unless it's something that like I mean that's like critical to living. So I wanna ask you, what is your entrepreneurial what was your first one? And are you still doing it now? And if not, what are you doing now?
1: No, no, my first one was a similar company to eBay.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yes. But well, remember that the internet really didn't come to fruition until 95. So mm-hmm. this was 92. So I was talking to people about, it was called Trading Systems Limited, and it was about being able to sell things that didn't have a liquid market. I mean, we were thinking of coins and stamps and items like that at first, but you know, we were going to be over modems and we had the software down. So, no, that didn't happen. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I found eBay in, I can't remember, 98, 99, something Mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, I still have an account and I just, I love what they've done.
0: Yeah. But now I'm running an online farmer's market. Right. Okay. So that's close to my heart as a plant-based eater. Oh, And, you know, my whole family is this is definitely something that I want to learn more about how you're making this work. I mean, it's one of those things that's so from what I hear, people have tried. It's difficult because, you know, you got to keep the food fresh and all of that. But I know you have a unique spin on it. So tell us a little bit more about your business and how you're able to accomplish it.
1: Yeah, the company's been around for 11 years. Really, the problem that we were trying to solve is how to connect local farmers with local consumers in a way that's profitable for everyone.
0: Wait a minute. Do you only do this in an area where you live, or is this something that's across the country?
1: Not across the country yet. We're delivering in all the suburbs of Virginia, and we've moved into Maryland.
0: Oh, fantastic. And our
1: goal is to move, you know, throughout Maryland. We're kind of like north of Washington, D.C. right now, but the goal is to, you know, move elsewhere in Mm -hmm. the state. So, yeah, we started it in um, 2011. This is where I didn't need an MBA to start this. I mean, I just sort of wrote 10 things on a piece of paper of what I wanted to do, and I really wanted to do something local, something that made a difference and something that had a niche in such a way that, it didn't have a lot of competition and it could be very profitable.
0: I'm always interested to know why this in particular, because some of the criteria you just mentioned, I could think of some other ideas, but why this went on food and nutrition, you know, or this specific type of business?
1: Well, I, I grew up, my father was in the military, but my high school years were on a gentleman farm. So we had horses and cows and we had a vegetable garden. And, you know, when I got out on my own and I had kids, I realized that just food didn't taste as good from the grocery stores as it used to when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And it was that realization that, you know, really freshness equals flavor. And so when you're picking something from a garden, and I always pick green beans. I really love eating green beans right out of a garden because you don't have to cook them.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: And no one knows that because if you're getting a green beans from a grocery store, you're just not tasting the same animal that you're, you yeah. well, know, they're say already
0: the lent by the time they get. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I know all about it. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So that was really the impetus. I also knew a farmer that had a CSA, which is community supported agriculture. It's this concept that well, he had 500 members that paid him up front. And then every week he provided them with produce.
0: And that's what I'm looking for. Is that your business model? No, I can't, we're kind of a glorified CSA.
1: So what we did was, his name was Charlie, and Charlie always looked tired in the summer because it was just too much for him. I mean, he farms, he distributes, goes to farmer's markets. It's just, it's a lot of work. In fact, one of our farmers, he goes to farmer's markets and he has to farm at night. And he puts a pith helmet on his head. And he has the tractor at the end of the row and, you know, with the light shining and he's picking at night because that's the only time he has to um, do that. So we wanted to support the farmer. You know, they just need to get out of the distribution business, these um, CSAs. So that's what we handle. And basically what we do, you know, we're talking here at 2 p.m. on um, Friday. Our market opened at 2 and it'll close Sunday at midnight. And we have everything that's available around us in Richmond, Virginia, here. And we go out about 150 miles. So we're we've got produce coming from North Carolina and some coming in, you know, from Maryland. That's kind of our you know swath of of area. And then we're telling the farmers Monday after the market closes exactly what they need. They're picking it Monday and we're delivering it Wednesday.
0: Wow, that is incredible. I know a lot of us wish there were things like that. Even in our communities, you know, people have community gardens and things now. But, you know, there are farmers that are local, especially, you know, I'm in Georgia. We have plenty of them, Plenty, (laughs) but it's, it's more of a logistical issue, right? Like you said, they want to focus on farming and producing the food. We need some logistics to deliver and all that without overburdening them.
1: Right. You know, we don't make contracts with our farmers because they're farmers. So we have some farmers that they do farmer's markets, other ones that just have a niche item. I have a farmer north of here that just does um, asparagus. So, you know, we just try to fit in and, and support them as best as we can.
0: We're going to take a quick time out and pick back up in just a moment. If you need marketing campaigns and landing pages done quickly so that you can test the market with your ideas and see who's interested and then stay in touch with those people, you need a tool that can automate all of that. You're an innovator and you're certainly busy. Perhaps you don't have a CMO or chief marketing officer right now, or you have no plans to hire one anytime soon. And you may be doing this type of work yourself or have a new career professional or even intern helping you. You need Entreport. You can build a landing page or website in minutes. You can accept payments. You can automate marketing campaigns and the list goes on and on. I have personally been using Entreport to build, automate and grow my business for going on seven years now. I don't recommend any tool that I haven't used and that I don't believe can help the Unpolished MBA audience. Simply put, you can move and test your innovative ideas in the market faster with this tool. Don't get bogged down with too many complex tools. This is all you'll need. Go to tpnfocus.com forward slash entreport and that's spelled O-N-T-R-A-P-O-R-T. And that's O-N-T-R-A-P-O-R-T, tpnfocus.com forward slash entreport. Go there to start your free trial and get started. Is this your full-time job? Yes. And do you have a team? Yes. <laughs> you know, because I, I understand how this operation can be lean or it can be, you know.
1: Well, it's it's lean in that there are probably 10 of us working mostly full-time, but it's big in that we have 200 people that deliver.
0: Oh, interesting. Do you guys utilize the sharing economy at all?
1: Yes, we do. We started before it really worked. You know, it was kind of interesting to to watch it come to fruition. It was like, oh, that's what we are. You know, up in Maryland, where we, we deliver, we have a few people up there. They deliver for us. They don't come down to Richmond, Virginia to pick up the produce. We take a box truck. We drive it up to Maryland. We have what we call a party stop. And then they come to the party stop. We've already pre packed all the orders. They pick it up, and then they go and deliver it.
0: Wow. I think that that is something like whatever you all have figured out as far as logistics, that's something that could be implemented somewhere else. You're thinking about coming to places like Georgia and extending?
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So are you adding technology to this or, or what, what are you thinking?
1: We are a tech-enabled company because of my background. Mm-hmm. Um, we did design our own, you know, not just the business model, but the software.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes,
1: we we had to. There were off-the-shelf companies that sort of support what we do, but nothing really fit the business model that we wanted to create. So we we needed to do it ourselves.
0: Wow. You know what? That's really an advantage that those who have either a technical background or a technical network, you know, once you start figuring out what you need, you can just build what you need instead of you know, having to piece together other people's technology.
1: Yeah, there are some models. If we were a pure e-commerce company, mm-hmm. let's say, so we were selling this razors. There are off the shelf things you can use. But what we're doing is is unique. So, I, yes, there was something we could find.
0: Wow. So I was wondering when you say you have 10 people are these all, well, you said most of them are logistics, but is that something that they do full-time or is it, you know, just because you mentioned how really efficient your days are with getting your orders and then giving it to the farmers and then delivering it. Do they have other jobs or or is this basically their only job? You know, as we
1: grow, it shifts of those 10 people, six of them are full-time. You know, we have people in marketing and Operations, yeah, you know, product sourcing, those kind of things. The two hundred people that deliver for us, I always call it a part part time job.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So they'll meet the the truck at the party stop, you know, at a specific time. They'll pick everything up and and go off and and deliver. They're very critical though because our model really hasn't changed. We've been fortunate that we created a successful model at the beginning, and then we've just been refining it and making it better, not changing it. The people that deliver for us create relationships with their customers. I mean, you know, you want that you want that local touch where we all know when Amazon comes to our door, we don't know the person.
0: Right, <laughs> right, right.
1: But because we're delivering such a fragile product, being it produce or, or bread or, you know, something, because we really deliver anything you can get at a farmer's market. You, you really want that relationship so you know what, you know, the member, what their wants and needs are. And and then that person that delivers can keep things going and keep things better as much as possible.
0: That's good because I've written about this a few times on my LinkedIn because during the pandemic, you know, that's when a lot of people got hit to, you know, getting groceries delivered or or even right. just picking them up at the grocery store, just having the folks bring them to the car. And one of the things that I brought up, and I found it to be pretty common, is like, yeah, I'll grocery shop online or you know on my phone, but I'll still go to the store, pick my own produce, <laughs> go to my car, and then pull into the spot, and they bring the rest of my groceries because I just haven't seen it be consistent in picking what I find most appealing. I know some people have really distinct preferences like, oh, if it, if it's dented here, if it's like, it's not that bad, but I want to know that if it's limpy green beans, just don't give them to me. Like, don't, don't put them in a bag. Just don't, just say we don't have limpy green beans, but you can't get that type of service, you know, at grocery stores, even though you shop there every week. You're right, because the people don't
1: care. I mean, it's really what it is. The people that are picking it for you. I mean, grocery stores are really focused with produce on shelf life. There's a reason there's only that one type of green bean in grocery stores, because there are hundreds of varieties, but that's the one that lasts the longest. That's it. And so that's the one that's in the grocery stores. Wow. Um,
0: Never thought about it that way.
1: Because we have a two-day turnaround. I mean, there was really, we call our distribution site the hub. And there's really nothing in the hub right now because we deliver Wednesday, Thursday is, is our consistent weekly you know delivery days. So we don't have anything now until Tuesday. You know, we're trying to get the freshest produce possible.
0: So out of this, this venture, what would you say has been the most challenging part over the past 11 years? I
1: was thinking about that before we talked. You know, getting an MBA is, you know, it's not worthless. But there are just things you just have to learn as you go. Yeah. One is starting a company, especially you don't have that support. You end up at the start doing everything. There's not too much at the company that I haven't done, but You quickly want to find people to fit in your weaknesses.
0: (laughs) Yes, right. You
1: you need to find those people. I mean, the six people that are really on my team are wonderful. Some of them have skills that I just can't even touch. You know, they just, they have personal skills where they can hire people and hire the right people and keep them here or, you know, or control or just, she cares about every single nickel and she can find the money where, you know, where it went and and everything. And that's just so critical for what she does. That's what I think is the success of, you know, Seasonal Roots is that I was able to find good people that, you know, filled out my weaknesses.
0: So with the company Seasonal Roots, what would you say is your main responsibility? Because you get all these folks now, now you've been able to hire folks. You have all these folks now. What's your main responsibility?
1: Strategy. I mean, mainly moving us in a direction, you know, most of the people I work with are focused on our weekly cycle of, you know, the menu comes out and then we deliver and someone needs to keep their head up and figuring out, you know, how do we continue to compete if we get competitors that come in and start being more successful than we are or, How do we move into new areas like Maryland? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the one that's really spent the most time up in Maryland, making sure that we're making headway up there.
0: How do you start that process? So you start building a network up there, you work with the local neighborhoods, the chambers. You know what
1: I did? I literally just went up there and started talking to people. I can remember going to a yoga studio. I don't even remember how I got in there and just talking to the owners and who they knew and, you know, bringing them some boxes of produce and and just, you know, going that way. Or I know that our expansion is going to be local. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to expand from here to um, Atlanta uh, because it's too hard in Atlanta because it's too far away. I am moving into Maryland on purpose because I can ask all the people that I know here in Virginia, who, well, who do you know in Maryland? And just start leaning on it that way. So it takes a while to find the right people, right? Unless you're a big corporation and you can just say we're opening an office in Maryland and put out a um, you know a hiring sheet. But mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur, I just don't have the capital to do that and, and make mistakes. I have to find the right person, or we're in trouble,
0: right? So I'm, I'm guessing you you haven't raised money from investors or anything, and you've bootstrapped this company thus far. Is that correct?
1: Mostly. I bootstrapped it for the first five years. Okay. We just made a profitable model. So it was, we were able to do that. And then in 2016, we started looking for capital, but I've never had success with um, venture capital.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can see why though. Your business model doesn't fit with their business model, right? It's It's not exactly
1: right. And I I learned that the hard way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you know what I do? Like most of my, a lot, I would say like 50% of the work I do in my role with clients, is like helping them understand, like this doesn't fit the business model that they're looking for. So just stop chasing them and let's figure out how your business can make money.
1: Yes. What I know now about the venture capital world and what I tried to do in my first business were, you know, a perfect marriage. But the timing was off on those two. You know, venture capital wants a comparable. They want to know how they're going to exit. And they usually want to exit soon. I'm creating something new. So they don't know what the exit will look like. And I've had the mask. You know, I have to be honest. I, I don't know. I don't know if we get big enough and we go public or if we merge with something else that really wants us. We're just too different right now to know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, they would want you expanding to all 50 states right now in order for them to be, be, you know, they're looking for high, fast growth. You know, they want and and it doesn't even matter about profitability, as we can see with with Twitter. And so just the whole concept of how venture capitalists look at businesses is just different than every Thing else, And so, you know, I applaud you for saying, oh, I see, that's not for me. But I know some folks that still think that they're going to change someone, you know, someone in venture capital's mind about their business, even though it just doesn't align. And some are just really nice and won't say, you know, won't give the tough news that, you know, It doesn't fit in, but, you know, I can say that your business just overall is a wonderful thing to have, especially in our society where fresh food and and we have so much illness. And I mean, that's the best medicine I know from experience. And so I really appreciate you even putting your all into doing this business full time and being committed for the past 11 years to make it grow.
1: We've had really good stories of People with children who have cancer, who you know, use us, and and it just makes the world of good for you know for their child. Or, or we had a lady who couldn't make her grandmother's recipe, and she figured out when she was using seasonal roots, her grandmother passed away, mm. that it was a it was a recipe with potatoes in it, and her grandmother always got potatoes from the farmer next door, so they were fresh. And once she started getting our fresh potatoes, it, it tasted right. Yeah, we're trying to make a difference. That's definitely true. I d- never wanted to run a company that I didn't feel was a good for the world and Seasonal Roots is one.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your entrepreneurial journey with us and also information about Seasonal Roots. So, if our audience wants to learn more about Seasonal Roots or let's say cuz we do have some folks that are in the DMV area in the Maryland and Virginia area, how can they find out more about Seasonal Roots?
1: Well, we're online. So seasonalroots.com is the website.
0: And if they wanted to order, is it pretty easy for them to become a customer?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, okay. we only deliver in the suburbs. I always say we can't deliver past a cornfield or a horse stables. We're in the cities. But other than that, yes, it's, it's very easy to join.
0: Oh that's fantastic. Dwayne, thank you again for sharing your journey with us. And Unpolished NBA, make sure you visit seasonalroots.com. Thanks Dwayne.
1: Thanks Monique. Take care.
0: You too. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished NBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishednba.com.